out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the guitarist and songwriter Rocco Barker, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. He was in the band Wasted Youth and also Flesh for Lulu and Gigantic and is now back with Wasted Youth with dates coming out in 2023. So this is the interview. So after several minutes, in fact 30, of casual but interesting chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Rocco, it's over to you. Right at the beginning, um, my, my, my parents were actually quite old. Back, look, I was born in 1960, but my, my parents were already in their 30s. My mum was, was Italian. My dad was a typical like East Ender. Um, my dad wasn't particularly into music, but my mum was really into, like, Mario Lanza. Yes. And, um, you know, and she loved, like, Dean Martin, and she loved, you know, Frank Sinatra. So I got, I didn't really get to hear any sort of pop, popular music unless it was on the radio. And then, obviously, I, I, my first memories, really, I like I like the Beatles, really, listening to the Beatles. And there was, there was one album that my dad had bought for um, one of my cousins, and it was a, a compilation called Through the Past Darkly by the Rolling Stones. Oh, yes. And I remember putting that album on, like, over and over and over again from the age of about five or six years old. Yes. And so I suppose the Rolling Stones were the first sort of rock band that I, you know, a record that I could actually physically hold, even though it wasn't mine. I could hold it and put it on the turntable. And then by the time I was 11... Nothing really grabbed me. I, I, I really loved Freddie and the Dreamers. You remember Freddie and the Dreamers? Oh, yes, definitely. I, I, I really loved them, right? And then Alice Cooper appeared from literally out of nowhere. Bowie had already st- was around. And, I, and, I, and as soon as I, I think the first thing I saw of David Bowie was, it must have been Space Oddity, yeah. It would have been Space Oddity, but I didn't buy any of his records, not until much, much later. But... As soon as Alice Cooper was on top of the pops, I think it was in 1972. Yes, um, that was it. Did um, he have Did he uh, have the sword and he started sort of like swaying, waving it around as sort of a young woman's kind of buddy? Why did you say that? Because yeah, he did. He did have the sword. Yeah, What's, I think that subliminally um, influenced me because um, I, I later went on to become. I went to a quite underprivileged, deprived school in yes. East London. And I don't know how it happened, but it's the kind of thing you only get in public schools. But we had a, um, they, they went and bought, they must have spent a fortune on a load of fencing equipment. And, and they had a top fencing master as an instructor. And within, within a couple of years, I was in the junior Olympic team as, as, a, as a sword fencer, a fencing foil. Fantastic. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. And I, was, I, I thought I was going to become a professional sword fencer until my teacher said to me there's no such thing jeez <laughs> it's an amateur sport isn't it <laughs> yes but all the same that's a really yes i never i'm never out of all the, all the things that people have done i never come across somebody who got that far table tennis occasionally and a few oh, chess yeah. players but not not fencing my god yeah. the, I, I, I was really into it i used to train every day of the week including saturdays not not on sundays and, and, and this 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 teacher that was at my school kind of just took me under his wing and realised I had potential because I, I, I just I was always the skinniest and littlest, and I was the last one to be picked for the football team. And I, 
with, with the ball, I would just run, you know, <laughs> anywhere near a ball, you know. Yes. And, and um, I was just useless at all kinds of sports. I, I was quite a good swimmer, but um, I don't know. Apparently what it is, um, you've got to have really good eye-to-hand yeah. coordination. And great and, reflexes. Yeah, reflexes. And also with, with fencing, it's probably a bit like boxing, I imagine. It's... Um, how to counteract a move. So someone, it's a bit like chess. Again, it's like chess. Someone makes a move, you make a counter move against that, and then, and so on. You know, it goes backwards and forwards. And it's like, and so you've got to be able to retain all, all, no, all, those, all those movements, basically. Yeah. You know, you know, someone lunges at you, you parry and whatever, you know. And so, but I loved it. And then at the age of, I realised I wasn't going to be a, a professional football player, uh, sorry, a professional uh, fencing uh, fencer, and yes. um, and I remember thinking, I know, I'll learn to play guitar. So I convinced my mum to convince my dad to get me a, a bass guitar, which which I thought would be easier to play than a six string guitar because only got four strings. Well, absolutely. Which, but it's not necessarily true because it's not that that simple. Bass isn't necessarily easier. It's maybe a bit more straightforward, but it's not necessarily easier. So anyway, I started off on, on bass, didn't really get too far. And then I switched to a six string and there were a couple of brothers down the road who were playing a bit of guitar and they, they taught me a bit. And by the time I was, I started quite late really because like Nick, the, the singer of Flesh for Lulu, his stepdad started teaching him from the age of about nine or 10. Right. And he, you know, he was just an like amazing guitar player. I'm, I've never considered myself a, a, a particularly technical. I'm not a technical guitar player. Um, I've just become a good rhythm player, and I and I can write. I'm I'm reasonably good at writing songs. You know, I can construct songs and stuff. Um, but I'm not. You know, I'm not a great lead guitar player. I can't like you know virtuoso guitar. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, I know. You know, I know. Lemmy went from the Rock and Vickers, which was rhythm guitar. He went to bass, didn't he, with Hawkwind? So I think the right. two instruments are slightly. And also one of the members of the Jimi Hendrix experience, I think he was a sort of a, a rhythm guitarist who went to bass. So I guess the two instruments have a certain, they're quite... I, I can play bass. I mean, I, you know, if, if I'm doing a bit of recording at home or whatever, or even if I'm in rehearsal. I mean, we, we, would do, we did a Wasted Youth rehearsal, you know. Um, well, oh, here we go. I've been married for like 15 years, but I am going through a a separation it's, and it's all amicable there's no there's no screaming and shouting and, and it's my, my wife or my ex I'm not, well I'm, we're still living together yes. not in Hill but um, it's my ex-wife TC and she's the bass player in Wasted Youth at the moment okay yeah and uh, she used to be in Miranda's Sex Garden Oh, Miranda Sex Garden, my God, because they just recently had a gig in London, didn't they? Yeah, um, yeah, I went to that. Yeah, they've just reformed. Because so Catherine, Catherine from Catherine. the Medieval Babes, I've done quite yeah. a few interviews with her. Well, yeah. well, well, TC was in the Medieval Babes in, in the, from, right from the beginning. And Catherine, oh, this is so incestuous, but Catherine, I married TC, who was Nick Marsh's girlfriend for like 15 years. And Catherine has got kids with Nick who died. Cheesy crazy. That's so Catherine's got two children with Nick. So right. it's, we're quite intertwined in that way. Yeah, I know I know yeah. Catherine then lost her husband and now is with somebody from well, that another. That was Nick. That was Nick, my best friend. Oh blimey, oh Riley. Yeah, that's Nick Marsh, my best friend. Oh, because she started a record label and they brought an album. Yeah. Oh gosh. That's yeah. It. Right, okay. So, so T C was in the original lineup of Medieval Babes and they they toured with like Jules Holland and his big band and they 
they toured with uh, Courtney Love and Hull. Yeah, um, I, I remember them doing the Jules Holland one because there was a lot of blokes in one band, a lot of women in another. So um, you can imagine it was good times. And also, bizarrely, back in those early days when they were on Bubbly Virgin Records, I, I remember getting a, a green medieval babes T-shirt when I spoke to Catherine. She said, yes, I've still got one of those in my uh, wardrobe yeah. somewhere. So, uh, yeah, well, no, I, I ended up hanging out with Catherine after that gig at the 100 Club. Yeah. And, uh, a few months back. They, were, they, they were really good. They were and they've got a couple of really good musicians with them now who were in sort of slightly psychedelic. Was it the Cardiac? No, Carvis. They've got Carvis that was in... Um, yeah, that's right. Oh, Is it yeah, the Cadillacs? Card- in... Card- oh, Yeah. Oh, God. Um, God, we gong. should be gong. gong. He's now in well, gong, isn't he? Yeah, this is like pop quiz, isn't it? Um, yeah. we're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm slightly boggled by all these kind of, um, yeah, blimey, Nick, Nick, and Catherine. Oh, shoot, right, yeah. that's, um, yeah, and they started a label because I know Catherine said, I'll oh, try and check out their a, a new album that I think her and oh, I don't know, slightly going off the rails here. Well, she, yeah, I mean, she, um. There was an album that was released of stuff that they recorded together before he died. Yeah. I mean, it's really sad. I it mean, is. You know, he, I mean, yeah. I mean, I spent more time with Nick Marsh than I spent with anybody else on the planet. Yeah. You know, we met in 1983, and then for the next 20-odd years, there probably wasn't there's literally a day that we didn't see each other. Wow. You know? And um, we, used to live, we used to literally live around the corner to each other, wherever we were in London, um, we even lived together in the early days, and yeah, you know, we became best. You know, even even though we weren't doing towards the end, we weren't we weren't in a band together anymore. We were still really good friends. We used to used to go and have a drink together, and you know, have a few beers and whatever. And you know, it's just so sad. No, you know? God, it's, uh, the fifties are tricky, aren't they? So going back, so when you did you say you did fencing? Did you leave school then at sixteen, or did you do? I left school. I stayed on for the extra year. I did. I did stay on to the sixth form, but I, I literally left with like, like no qualifications. I mean, the only thing I got was a, something. I got an art. I got something in art, and I didn't even bother going to my, my maths and English. Right. I, I had no interest in doing anything. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I went. I think the first job I got was in a photographic studio, where I, I never used to see any daylight. Um, in the winter time, it'd be, it'd be dark when I went to work in the morning, dark when I came out, and I just used to go out, go out, you know, and punk had just started happening. Yes. Um, so I got, I got into the whole punk thing. I had a little punk band with my mate from school, from school, and we used to go to the Hundred Club, um, you know, the Roxy, the Vortex, all those, you know, you know where the, you know, all the bands were. I never got, I was, I never got to see the Pistols. That was the one band I didn't see. But I saw all the others. I saw, you know, you know, the really early damned gigs, you know, the early Stranglers gigs, you know, all the, all the bands that were up and coming. And then by the time I was about 19, um, Ken Scott had put Wasted Youth together. And, and they'd, only, they'd only played a few gigs. They hadn't played that much. But they, they, they did have a guitarist, but he wasn't really a guitar player. He just used to play these weird tape loops and, and noises and stuff. And Ken really wanted someone, you know, that, that could actually play a bit of guitar. Yes. And he and he just he just rang me. He just went, "Why don't you come and join Wasted Youth?" And I was like, "Wow, okay, yeah." He said, "We've we've just been, uh, we're, we're being produced by Peter Parrott from the Only Ones, and we're going to go on tour with the Only Ones. Do you want to do it?" And I was like, "Yeah." 
and it's it's really it's funny and it's ironic actually because um when I went to my dad at that point I'd, I'd got an apprenticeship yes. and I'd, I'd become like a a sheet metal worker and I, and I was making really like really very good money for my age I was making like quite a lot of money uh, but I hated the work and I, I said to my dad I'm gonna I'm gonna leave my job and I'm gonna go on tour and my dad went if you do that I'll never speak to you again bugger off go on and um and then about it must have been about I don't know 15 20 years later and my career had taken a bit of a nosedive and I remember I was with my dad, and I said, Dad, I'm thinking about giving up music. So I just, it's just like, you know, it's just not going anywhere. He went, if you give up music, you can bugger off, and I'll never speak to you again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, classic. Yeah. So that was really funny. So that was great. I mean, you know, so I went from, like, having a little punk band where we just played to a few mates. Um, Wasted Youth were already, like, could already pull a few hundred people, so they're already, like, pulling a paying audience. And then soon, soon as I joined, uh, did, did you know, did my first proper recording with Peter Parrott. Uh, we did our second single. We went on tour with the only ones. And then before we knew it, we were just packing out venues everywhere. You know, it's great. Amazing. God, that is incredible. Because you were on a label, weren't you? Which was, was it Bridge it was, House? It, yeah, it was called Bridge House Records, yeah. Yeah. What it, what it was, it was a pub. It was, like, it was like the only venue in East London where you could actually see, like, live music but not not just pub bands yes there were, there were a few like pubs in the east end but they just had these like run-of-the-mill covers type pub band pub rock type things whereas the bridge house um i think this i think the sex pistols played there you know um i think the clash played there the strangler everyone it was it was kind of on the circuit it was like a, a big old pub in canning town un- underneath the flyover and darren murphy who was the bass player in wasted youth um his dad ran it right so, and, he, and that was Ter- Terry Murphy. And uh, so Terry had his own record company. So basically, Bridge House was our, was our record label, our management, our publisher, and our agent. So they were kind of like everything, you know what I mean? And it was all, all under one umbrella. Um, I mean, everything we released, I mean, we worked with people like Martin Hannick, you know, who produced Joy Division and stuff. Yeah. We worked with him, which was quite, quite interesting. Um, um, and we and we did actually do one studio album, which only took three days to record, um, and the whole thing only took a couple of weeks to actually finish. Um, so we did have a little bit of money, a little bit of a budget, you know, and and we we kind of made made money by playing live. So you know we would get paid, you know, decent money just by by being out and doing gigs. So it, you know we had a really great time in that in that less than two years that we were together. But then, oh, I don't know. It was like there were there were a lot of like influences. Everyone was getting basically everyone started started to get into heroin. You know, everyone became heroin addicts. Yes, that's never. Um, I didn't realise because I know from speaking to quite a lot of bands from that New York scene. I mean, heroin was pretty everywhere, and it was cheap it as was. well. But I didn't realise the UK had slightly had that it, issue it, as well. well. Yeah, it was. It was when the, it, well on a, on a political level, you know. So, what, what basically it was when the Shah of Iran was overthrown, wasn't it? And when when the Shah was overthrown in Iran, like the, the, pretty much the whole, especially Britain and Germany, I think, were just they, they, it was just awash with like good cheap heroin, right? And you, and you could just get it, you know. And I mean, in those days, you know, you'd have to go around to places in Knightsbridge and Chelsea and hang out with Bohemians, whereas today, it, well, for one, it's not even heroin. God knows what it is, what they take these days. It's just some weird chemical, and now it's 
whatever it is, they, it's on every housing estate, isn't it? Although, you know... You yes. Know, well, I, I, don't just, know if, I don't know if you notice it, but when I walk around or bike around Norwich, you can smell an amazing amount of dope in the air as well. <laughs> That's the yeah. one. It's like, I keep thinking, has it, has it become legal? Do, do you know just... what? I, I actually think that marijuana is, is probably a worse, one of the worst drugs. I, think, I don't think heroin is nowhere near the worst, one of the worst drugs. Yeah, it can kill you if you take too much of it, but it doesn't make you violent. It doesn't necessarily hurt your body. If you're taking, you know, if it's like pure and it's clean, it doesn't necessarily hurt you. It's organic. Whereas there's so many young guys, especially young, young men, that are like committing suicide, you know, suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, all the mental illnesses that, that go with, with smoking too much skunkweed. Yes. Yes, and there's a lot of it. It's just... It, it, I think it's evil. I, think, I really do. I think, I think, you know, a skunk is just like... It's so strong, and I mean, I've, I've never been a big fan of marijuana anyway. I've, I've never really liked marijuana. No, well, I was asthmatic, so smoking was completely a zero. No, you know, don't do that. No, I mean, in the eighties, I mean, especially when people started getting successful, you know, the, the drug of choice was cocaine, you know, and it's it's funny because I know quite a few people that you know did and you know or still do have problems with it, but luckily for me, cocaine never really. I could take it or leave it, if you know what I mean. I would do it occasionally if I felt like it, but it, it never got a hold of me, you know, whereas I, I have battled most of my life with opiate, opiate dependency. Yes, it's tricky, isn't it? I yeah. think I think because I I got asthma when I was four, and had it every all the time, you know, and I still do. But the summer it would just you know for two months it would all, it would go all over the place, and I would struggle quite a lot. And I think because of that, I just didn't do much else other than drinking. That, really, that probably that probably kept you in line. Yeah, because I just I mean by September it was like oh it's getting better, but July and August were just like a bit of a wipeout. So really, you couldn't you know you could barely I could go up the stairs without stopping halfway and oh. having a, and having a breathe and a vent and a right. so Blimey. you know when September came around I was like oh thank god the, the weather's changed I can breathe again so so when is it when, when is it worse then? July and August you oh know, is it when, so, it's, well, when, when it's dry dry wet wet dry damp weather is my oh ad- right okay. and also nature I love nature but nature makes me wheeze and itch and uh, yeah yeah but, one of my boys is a, a, gets um um, oh, yes, he has to take some tablets. Um, he, he gets really allergic to yeah. like certain kinds of like um, plants and stuff. I know it's tricky. I mean, actually, when I was at school, okay, I was the only kid with the ventolin and asthma. Could you imagine that now? Jesus Christ! I no. mean, <laughs> it, was like, I know. it was like you know, I was the only kid. You know, I didn't know anybody else who had a ventolin, so right. and had asthma. So that was kind of weird, wasn't it? So up till nineteen eighty, you know, that was that. That shows you how common it was. So uh, yeah. It's weird, isn't yeah. it? Really, it's we're, we're all over it place. So look, so go yeah. back. God, I know we yeah. love medical things, don't we? Um, but I do. When I get to a certain age, it's all about medical stuff. But look, so with your band, I mean, you know, Thatcher gets in seventy nine. Then we have the Falkland War, the the, the miners' strike. We have kind of the Green and Common. We're yeah. all going to have dying yeah. a nuclear war, aren't we? And so the band wasted youth. Do you kind of reflect those kind of times a bit with? Do I, do I what those times are? Reflect a bit of those kind of like, you know, because there was a lot of unemployment. I know you weren't, but there, a lot of yeah, bands were kind of... There, there was. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I mean... Oh, do, you know, do you know what's, what's so, so different and what's so... You know, I, think, I think it's, 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 
it's more difficult today because, okay, yeah, we, you know what? We didn't, nobody had money. Everybody was, you know, there's a mass unemployment. But at the same time, there was a lot of, like, sort of like the arts. You, you know, if you want to be a writer or a painter or a musician, if there was this thing, you could go and squat, basically, which meant you could go and live. There were, there were a lot of empty houses all over London. And, like, for instance, when I first met Nick, um, we lived in a house in Brixton, and we were there for, like, seven years, I think. Well, I didn't live there for the whole seven years, but uh, the people that were there for seven years, they didn't pay any rent. All they had to do was keep the house, you know, stop the roof from leaking and pay the, you know, pay the electric and the gas and whatever, and you could live in it. And, and basically, the, the local authority owned it. It was like an ex-council, but they didn't have money to do it up. So, so people were kind of left to their own devices, and kind of, a, and there was this whole subculture of people that were like living in in flats and houses all over London, probably all over Britain, just getting on with their lives, you know, and scraping a living one way or another by being in a band. Whereas today, you haven't got a hope in hell. Yes, it, it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, because it's yeah. No, there are no, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as an empty room anymore. There's no such thing as an empty sofa in London. I know, it's true. Well, I, I just did an interview with uh, one of the members of um, That Petrol Emotion. Um, oh, I know that lot. And, and they, run, they... Oh, yeah, we used to run into them all, all over America. We always, always used to run into them on the, the airports. Yeah. yeah, well, he was saying that when they were... Because they were in Derry in Ireland, and they thought, well, we've got to come over to London. So they, they kind of came and... They, he didn't, they had a place where he paid, but he said a lot of them just had a squat in the same building, including Steve and various other members. And then I've done interviews with lots of bands from Australia and New Zealand who came over during the 80s. That's right. And they all, and, and they yeah, all, all, they all yeah. came and squatted in London in various places. Yeah. And there was a place called the Ambulance Station that had a venue, a squat and stuff like that. So. There was a really famous one, uh, Kennington, I think it was Kennington. No, the Oval. There was a massive one at the Oval. There was another one in King's Cross. The, the, one, in, the one that we were in, in, in Brixton... I mean, in those days, there weren't so many white people there. And um, we, we used to rehearse, it, you know, in one of the rooms. And, and you know what? We used to have neighbours come into the, to the house, like Jamaican neighbours and stuff, and come and sit and watch you know, and listen to us. <laughs> it, it was brilliant. Do you know what mm. I mean? There was no, like, people moaning, that, oh, you know, turn it down. They loved it. Excellent. It was, you know, it was, it was, it, looking back, it was actually... And a really creative, amazing time. Yes. You know, um, you know. I, I don't. I don't want to get all social political about it, but you know, there, there's. They, they, I did hear they did some some experiment. I think it might have been in Finland or somewhere like that, where they they basically, because it's not a very big population, and they gave the whole country, like a, a minimum wage type thing oh yes yeah and so they could either go to work and make extra money on top of it or they were given enough money to just get on with it and like you know and it'd be enough just to survive kind of thing um because i don't know if i'm right i'm probably wrong but what someone did some some numbers and they went the amount of people that we're employing within you know within the um you know the benefit system and the buildings that we're paying rent on We'd be better off just giving that money to the people rather than creating all this work and paying paying out all these you know bills that go with it. And 
I, there was a there was a thing on LBC Radio, and I was quite shocked by the the way most the way the general public kind of um, reacted to it. Because to me, I I just think that's amazing. Because it, for me, that straight away is going to spark creativity. It's going to spark people in engineering. It's going to spark people in the arts. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It means it means they've got a platform to to work from. They they haven't got to kill themselves at work, and then come home at night and try and you know, and, and then work even more. Do you know what I mean? And but most of the people that rang up, a lot of them were like London black cab drivers, are going, no, you don't want to do that. People just be sitting on their asses and doing nothing all day. You know, and it's like, well, not necessarily. No, you know, I think you get bored after a while. I think, um, yes, I think I think most people. I mean, actually, it would it would save so much of the admin and the expense and trying to, you know, all the stress of. Um, I mean, we're almost there anyway. I mean, nearly everybody I know, including myself, have ended up on universal credit. Yes, that's true. Yes, you know, almost everybody I know. Well, do you... Kids, you know, you know my, my my kids just go to a little a little Catholic school, you know, in Labrador Grove. You know, most of the kids are just working class, mums and dads and whatever. And I'd say I'd say seventy, eighty percent of all the parents I speak to, they're all they're all on they're all on um, some sort of um, universal credit to top because no no one gets paid enough money to survive. I know all that admin, all that paperwork. It's crazy. It's yeah. I mean, no. And also, the other thing that happened, and this is probably why um, doing this show has been fascinating, because there are thousands of bands from the eighties. But there was like the unemployment system or job seekers allowance, and there was something called enterprise allowance schemes where you could be yeah. If you had a if you managed to find a thousand pound to put in your bank account, show the whatever, um, and then you could just have a year of being self-employed, and that that was actually quite good because you got a very small amount. You got money to basically survive on as long as you had exactly me, uh, I, I did that and yeah. you had housing benefit and also uh, yeah. the council tax pay but actually for 38 pound and 50p you would learn how to live kind of within your means by just being very frugal yeah well, well, that, well with that scheme in fact, I'm, um, I've, um, I've, I've been there's a friend of mine called Gwendolyn and um and her dad was um actually advisor to the um uh, the Labour Party. When t- I mean, uh, I, I think it's Margaret Thatcher that that in actually. But um, yes. he, he was he was an advisor, and I think he was partly um, partly responsible for for working on that that policy. And it, it worked it worked brilliantly because yeah, you could you could basically you know get get your rent paid and have, you know and have your you know your, your council tax paid, and it was up to you to then go and make some money to live on. Yes. You know, and they, they they try all these different things. I mean, I know people that are in full-time employment, and they they're still having having to you know get universal credit. I know it 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 would just simplify so many things, and um, yeah, but it's one of those political hot potatoes, isn't it? But it is crazy because actually, if you just gave people that, I mean, I can't remember what it's called. Some sort of allowance. It's almost like a living allowance. Living that, allowance, yeah. And you all just got the same amount, and you know, most people would get bored after a while and think, I think sure, I've got to do something else with my life, or just go and discover, I don't know, learn something new or experience yeah. something new. I don't know. I don't think people are going to be scroungers for life. Personally. No, I don't, I don't think so. I, don't, I mean, also, you know, you know when kids, like kids leaving school these days, I mean, there's, there's so many, like, on average, it's something like 10 grand a year just to put a kid through one year of, of uni. 
and there's just so many of those college courses that actually don't mean anything. Yes. You know, they don't, you know, you might come out of a piece of paper, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a job out of it. No, I mean, I think the main thing with those things is that you get an experience, which I know, I I know it's a bit simplistic, but I think getting away from home and having a new scene for three years is quite, you know, it's kind of... Yeah, that is true. That's the one, but but not at £10,000 a year, that's too much. No, I know, I mean, I've got twins, I mean, there's no way I could afford that. Yeah, it's going to be a tricky one. So when Wasted Youth came to an end, did you... When did the Flesh for Lulu start then? Um, right, well, basically, I always consider... With Wasted Youth, Ken Scott's a little bit older than the rest of us, and his brother Andy um, is probably maybe around more of my age. So Ken was already like an, like an accomplished musician. I always felt that Ken was obviously the most talented one musically. Uh, Darren and Nick, the other two members, couldn't really play, and they, they kind of learned... Uh, to play a bit of keyboards and, and bass, and I didn't really consider myself that that talented, to be honest with you. You know, I didn't. I, you know, so I was a little bit. Um, I wasn't very confident, put it that way. Um, but I was the guitarist in Wasted Youth, which did mean something, which kind of kind of meant. But I knew that I could kind of. I knew that I could join another band very quickly. Who were already sort of had a record deal, had money, and I and I. I, I, you know, and I was, I still, I did have a, a drug problem at that point, and I, I needed money, you know, and I, um, and in fact, it was actually, my, I owed my drug dealer money, right? Yes. And, it, and he, he, he picked up the melody maker, and he went, look, there's a, there's a, an advert for a guitar player that have got a record deal, and about to make their first record, and and they want a guitar player, and their influences are, develop underground. And the, and the Stooges, you went, look, it's right up your street. Go on, go and audition. My God. And I, I, so I did. And that was, that was, with, that was within about, um, it was within a few, few months, actually, a few months of Wasted Youth splitting up. I auditioned for Flash for Lulu and I got it. Yeah, so, so your drug dealer was a caring, sharing sort of careers, <laughs> careers, t- well, careers advisor. Yeah. He wanted his money back, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's... So, he didn't yeah. want to just break your kneecaps, though, or break your fingers. Oh, no, yeah, that's the other one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, so basically, um, and I remember showing up at that rehearsal, I, did, I didn't even have a guitar. I, um, I, I'd sold my guitar, and I just turned up, and, and I kind of knew I'd get it. Um, and that was it. And, I'm, and funny enough, we, it, it, I think it was just one of those things. It was just, um, you know, a happy coincidence that we, we, we got on really well, and... It was just, you know, and well, I ended up, I ended up doing it for twenty odd years. That is an amazing relationship. Uh, one little advert in a paper, you know. My God! And did you manage to click, get clean during that time, or did it actually just get? Slack? Yeah, I, I did. When I joined Flesh for Lulu, they were like, you know, right, you've got to get clean. And at that point, I'm, I met a lovely girl called Lucy Wisdom, whose brother used to run that club called the Bat Cave. Oh yes, yeah, the Bat Ollie. Cave. Yeah. So she was older than me, and. Um, she, and her her parents were doctors, and especially her dad, Anthony. I mean, he, he passed away a few years ago now, but Anthony was a doctor, and um, he used to prescribe me, you know, what I needed kind of stuff. And and with the help of Anthony and Lucy and you know the rest of Flesh for Lulu, um, I did get clean. I was clean for like, God, at least fifteen years at least. Um, 
and without getting, you know, I don't get too down about it, but what happened was it would have been in about, it would have been about 25 years ago that in a space of a few months, three pretty awful things happened. The first one was that me and Nick had signed a massive record deal in America with Columbia mm. and Warner Brothers. And we literally got half a million, you know, like um, record deals, you know, massive, massive amount of money. We, you know, we were pretty rich, basically. We were really well off, you know. And we just made a really great album. Um, we were managed by Hollywood's, one of Hollywood's biggest um, management companies, uh, part, we were managed by partner Michael Jackson management team, believe it or not, right? And it was all set to go. We, we were about to like, become, we'd gone from doing little clubs to playing theatres, and we were just about to become like a stadium rock band. It took us 20 years to get on this conveyor belt, like to, to go to the next level. Yeah. And it, and it all went wrong. It all went totally wrong. Is this um, the band called Gen, um, Gigantic? Gigantic. Yeah, Gigantic. I don't know why we changed the name. Oh, don't ask me. I, I don't know why the fuck we did that. Um, but we did. Well, Nick Nick wanted to change the name. Um, um, I, I remember we had to do a showcase with the journalists, and we played the Viper Room, Johnny, yes. Johnny Depp's club, the Viper Room in, in Hollywood. And we played it, and we put Gigantic, and, all, and, it, and it was like there were probably about 20 or 30 people there, and they, all, all they were were journalists. That the you know the record company had, had invited and it was a bit dull to be honest. And, yes. Uh, so I said, look, book it again, and just put Nick and Rocco from Flesh for Lulu, and then when they did it again, there were like queues around the block. Right. You know they couldn't get in there. So I knew it was, I knew we'd made a massive mistake doing that. Um, and then we were doing gigs with um, uh, a band called Bush. Yes, Bush. Tom. I mean, yeah, and Gwen Stefani. Um, it was Bush, Gwen Stefani, and a band called the Goo Goo uh, Dolls. Yes, classic. And we were playing football stadiums. And um, so the guy that signed us, a guy called Nick Terzo, he'd only signed two bands in 12 years. And the two bands that he signed were Soul Asylum and Alice in Chains. And at that point, Alice in Chains were like, they were the biggest thing on the planet. I mean, they were huge. And that was kind of like what we would be. You know, we we were like next in line, if you know what I mean. We were next in line to be going up the ladder, if you, yes. know, if you know. Um So anyway, I, I'll never forget, we got back. Um, the Google Dolls came into our dressing room. They, they got on their hands and knees and, you know, what, and I'm just like worshipping me and Nick and going, you know, you guys are the greatest band from Britain. We've just gone platinum. Come on tour with us. I'm like, okay, great. That <laughs> sounds amazing. Um, and then we got back to London. Everyone went on holiday. We were all, get, we were all getting ready to start, you know, doing a um, you know three or four month American tour. <clears throat> and our management just rang and went, "Hold your horses." Um, Nick Terzo's left Columbia Records and has gone to work for Maverick, you know, Madonna's label. And things are not going to be happening. And that was it. So that was it. it. We still had the money. I mean, that money lasted me and Nick another five or six years. You know, we didn't have to work for another five or six years. We had money to live on. Yeah. But our careers were finished. Oh, my God. You know, we were finished. And then literally within a month of that happening, I'd, I'd been with my girlfriend for about 15 years, and she was the singer in a band called The March Violets. Oh, who's that one? Cle Cleo. Oh, because I'd done an interview with two of the members, but not 
Cleo, I think. Yeah, Cleo doesn't do it. Anymore. She's not doing it anymore. No, but she was. She was the one that was actually the really good singer. She was the blonde one. She, she was the one. She was actually, yeah. She's not the one that did all the operatic wailing. Um, she's the one that could actually sing and they, and took it to a more pop, poppy sort of level. Yeah. Um, and the Marsh Violets, because we we uh, we we had the lead soundtrack in a John Hughes movie uh, called Some Kind of Wonderful, and uh, it was a follow-up to Pretty in Pink which the Psychedelic Furs did. Yes. Um, it's funny, really, because I've, I've been hanging out with Richard Butler again from um, the Psychedelic Furs. He came to London, and I went out drinking with him, which is really lovely. Um, and it was his daughter's 25th birthday. Um, and, and he invited us to, to play the Royal Albert Hall with them. Wasted Youth played the Royal Albert Hall with the Psychedelic Furs a few months ago. Oh, my God. And, yeah, and I'm hoping that Richard will invite us again to... to um, um, you know, do some more shows with them. I made his glasses, actually. I made a pair of glasses for Richard and his wife, Erica, and um, I've just made a, a, a pair for John Ashton, the guitarist from the, the Psychedelic Furs, who isn't very well at the moment. Oh, dear. He hasn't been touring with them. He's got... He's, he's been very ill. Yes. So I, I, I just sent him some glasses I've made for him at Christmas. Anyway, getting back to the story. Um, so me and Cleo have been together 15 years, and we got to the point where we're like, you know... You know, if we're you know if we're going to stay together, then you know, we're, you know we're getting on. We'll try for a baby. You know, we'll try to have we want to have a kid. Yes. Know? And so she got pregnant, and literally a month after you know the record deal and everything falling to pieces, um, she had a miscarriage. And mm. yeah, it, it was pretty awful. Yeah. And 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 that that was like really just terrible. You know, really terrible. And we split up. It's you know it's quite common when that happens with couples. You know, you used to give for years and years and years. Something like that happens, and that's it. It's over. So we, I, so then, so I'm all, for one, I'm I'm really depressed because of my, my career's gone down the pan. Number two, I'm really depressed because I split up with my girlfriend after 15 years. And then literally, the final nail in the coffin was that my dad was diagnosed with um, asbestosis and was given months to live. Yeah, so, so within so over the next few months, I used to commute to a hospital. Luckily, he was in the you know a nice private hospital because he, he had like his, you know his company had insurance and everything you know. And but even still, it was just like watching my dad die. Slowly every day, I, you know, I was really very very close to my dad. Yeah. And um, I think I didn't know. Um, I mean, one of my sons. Um, has been diagnosed with ADHD. I've got two little boys. One's called Rocco Jr. and the other one's called Caesar. <laughs> and uh, and Caesar, at school, the teachers took us to one side and they said, you know, I think we need to look at Caesar because he's falling behind and he can't concentrate. And when I look back at school, I was the same. And he's, he's been diagnosed with ADHD. You know, like attention, attention yeah. deficiency. And actually, I know that I've got it. I know I have. And, and apparently, people with ADHD, they don't really get depressed. They don't really suffer from depression as such. Mm -hmm. But what happens is, it manifests, it sort of presents as um, um, anxiety. So, so you get anxious. And that's, that's what happens to me. I, I, don't, I don't ever really remember feeling like really depressed. But I get anxious, which is just like another form of depression, really. Yeah. So, and I remember at this time, watching my dad die, and I was, 
I compensated. I've got two younger brothers, and, and all three of us compensated, really, by drinking too much, just to block it out. We, we were all just getting drunk, just to, just to try and block it out. And I remember I had, one of us had to go and pick up my mum. Um, and I realised, hold on, I've been drinking. I can't, I can't drive. My brothers, both my brothers were already drunk in the pub. And I just thought, this is just not, this is not happening. And I, and I consciously decided that if I was to go and get some heroin, it would block all the pain. It would allow me to go on, do, do all the things I had to do. You know, at that point, when he did die, I, you know, I, I, I'd never done it in my life. I had to do all the paperwork and, you know, I had to you know, organise his funeral, all that stuff, which was so distressing. No one, no one teaches you how to do that stuff. You know, no, no. One, you know, no one tells you when someone dies. I didn't, you know, I've never had anybody that close to me die before. You know, and I basically, I, I think I went completely off the rails. I went way off the rails, and I went and got some heroin, and I took it, and it worked. I functioned. No one would have even known that I was. No one even knew that I was doing it, but I was, and I, and I functioned. Everything, everything went to plan. Everything was great, and then within six months after he died, I couldn't stop. I'd, I'd managed to get myself another habit. Yes. So, from twenty odd years ago. I'm really, really honest with you. I've still battled. I still battle with it today. And but I don't. I don't do heroin. No. You know, I, I was on that horrible stuff, methadone, for quite a few years, um, and then I was on this other thing called uh, Subutex, which is like buprenorphine. But I, found I was spending half of my life in doctor surgeries. You know, instead of being at work and getting on with my life, I was just sick of it. So I stopped doing that, and I, I ended up just buying stuff on the black market. You could get morphine and stuff on the black market. But just a few years ago, I decided that I really, really wanted to address it properly and, and just try and, you know, and try and sort of, for once in my life, you know, well, it would be the second time in my life, you know, get it, get it out of my life. And I'm, I'm on this experimental treatment where once a month I have an injection. Yeah. And yeah, you get they inject you with this. Uh, it's called uh, Buvidal, and it basically it's like a slow release action, and it makes you feel normal, which it does. And, it, and up to, up to date, it's working. So I'm kind of I'm kind of in a rehab program um, without being in a facility. So I'm you know I'm out and about, getting on with my life. But taking it easy, you know, I'm 62 and I'm, I haven't been well the last this last year, so I'm trying to take it. I'm trying to take it a bit easy and just, um, you know, and, and just try and sort of, you know, get on with it, you know. And for me, I mean, Peter Perry actually said something to me which was really, it's really resonated. Um, and he said to me, um, music is therapy, and it's true. Like if I sit down and I play music, it is. It's like therapy. Or if I sit and write a song, it's therapy. And the thing is, if you're if you if you're on any sort of benefits of any kind, and you go and play some music, they classify that as a job. Right. You see what I mean? Yeah. We've got a long way to go. Very. When it, com when, when it comes to like, you know what I mean? If like a guy, if a guy's you know he's not well and he can't work properly and you know he takes time out and he's a painter, for instance, and and actually painting really does help his 
psychological well-being, his, his you know, his physical well-being, and he and he, and he does a painting. And he, and he maybe even sells it for a few quid, the government are going to classify that as work. Mm. You know, we're still, we're still a long, long way off the mark. And, and, and the way that, you know, the, the prisons are full up with people that should be in hospital. 90% of everybody who's in a prison are in there because of drug-related crimes, basically. Yes, I know, it's, it's completely you know? So what are we doing? We're, we're locking them up, you know, where we should be treating them. Yes. Just just slightly coming back to you. Sorry, sir. I suddenly remembered you mentioned the beginning of this. was, was It was kind of strange, wasn't it? Because you went from the, the kind of the big advance and the, you know, the band Gigantic, which was produced by Tim Palmer, who yeah, was the Tim. kind of the man at the moment in the... Oh, he really is. Oh, he's, he's great. Oh, Tim's amazing. Were you, were you pleased with the album Disenchanted? I was. I, looking back on it now... At the time, I probably thought it was the best record we'd ever made. But looking back on it now, if I, I don't, I don't really listen to my stuff. You know, I don't, I don't really, you know, I don't yes. like sit and listen to it. But um, it's a little bit guitar heavy. I'm, even though I'm, I am a guitar player, um, it is a little bit guitar rock, guitar heavy for me. And I do, and, I, and now I do prefer the earlier, janglier, Flesh Lulu sound more. Yes. But I, love, I think it's a good record. I mean, there's some good songs, you know. It's, it's, got, it's got great sonics. I mean, Tim did make it sound sonically big, you know, and you know, it has got you know, a, big, a big sound to it. Yeah, I mean, it's just, um, yeah, I just, I just came across Bush recently. There's a film that's just come out about Woodstock 99 called Chagrin Wreck, and um, they had to go on after a band called Corn on the Friday night when all the crowd were... Oh, we were, we were managed by the same... Uh, people that manage corn managed us. Right, my God. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, luckily you didn't play at Woodstock '99. I think you might have. It was. It was quite a shocking moment, really. But really, when, what happened? Well, it was basically. Um, it was a. It was put. This this festival was put on what looked like an Arab that had been decommissioned so that it was like it was a lot of concrete and 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 asphalt it was very hot it was very heavily fenced in all Where, the whereabouts is this oh this is in america somewhere which i can't quite remember which right, part okay. but it was yeah. one of those ones where all the water and food stalls charged a fortune and the crowd sort of got more and more angry and more and more um, aggressive and got got oh. more, you know. So basically, by the Sunday night, the whole place it was rioting all the time. But then by the Sunday, wow. the whole place went up in flames. Oh, and, really? Um, Do you know what? I think I think I did hear something about that. When when was that? So this was it was it's the, the it was Woodstock. It was like um, a person who did the '69 Woodstock also did this one in 1999. But the right. film has only just come out this year um, on Netflix and it's called Trainwreck and if you want to watch something oh, I'll, I'll dig, I've got Netflix I'll oh well do, do check it out because it is one of those ones you, you start watching it and you see this crowd on the Friday night and you've never seen a crowd quite so up for something I mean like 200,000 people it was a, a mass wow. of waves and everybody is getting more and more frightened you know the audio you know what america america's a funny place because i mean i mean, I, you know, I feel lucky that you know i was in new york city in 1983 staying at the iroquois you know and um you know the gramercy park and playing at the ritz and you know it's just amazing you know going to cbgb's and the tunnel club and 
you know, in the early 80s, it was like, it was still really edgy and, and dangerous, really. And, and America was just this magical, magical place. I'd never seen, you know, I mean, the cars still looked amazing. And, you know, there was the hangover from the 1950s and 60s. And, you know, our first tours were just in cheap motels where, you know, they were, you know, all those kind of like kitsch, you know, Americana, um, you know, places and being in Hollywood. It was just, it was just amazing. I mean, you go there today... And, it, and it's, it, you, could, you could be on the autobahn, um, you know, driving from Dusseldorf to, to Berlin. All the cars look the same. Yes. And the way that America is, it's almost like a, a third world country with the homelessness and people living on the streets. You know, it's like, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an empire in decline, isn't it? You know, it's, um, it's just, just shocking the way that America is these days. Yes. And the way it's a, a divided country. When I was there, it was nothing like that. America, Americans in general, to me, just seemed like they were like the Brits, but, every, but they had a much better lifestyle, whether you're a bricklayer or a plumber or a doctor or whatever you were. If you paid like five quid for a, bre- for, you know, a breakfast in, in London, you pay $5. Or if you, you, know, if you put 10 quid of petrol in your car in London and you run around in a little mini, you put a dollar in your car and you run around in a Cadillac, you know, and it was just like, but they just had this, you know, and they've got the freeways where you can drive all over the place and everything was, everything was affordable, you know, a beer, a beer was a dollar, you know, everything was like, I don't know, it was just had this really easy, like, kind of way about it, whereas I haven't been back there for quite some time, but from what I can gather, it's, it's just, it's, pretty horrendous actually yes it's um it's... you know they've got a terrible bad you know opiate problem you know with like and homelessness you know and and you know and crack cocaine problem and painkillers uh, painkiller i mean they don't have you know i mean you're, you're screwed if you don't if you don't have health care we've got some friends from la that come and visit us and um and basically i've known them for years and they, 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 they spend $2,000 a month on their mortgage and another $2,000 a month on their health care. Yes, it's quite so, weird. You know, whatever we, people say about the NHS and whatever, we are, we are really, really lucky to have the NHS. Yes, well, no, I've been very lucky. I know, it's incredible, yeah. isn't it? I know. You, know. you are screwed. In America, you are screwed. Yes. You get ill. You don't have money and you get ill. You're, you're, that's it. You're over. You might as well be in India. Uh, to me, America, it's almost like it run, run, almost runs on the same premises the way a country like India runs. It's you know, it's it's like you know, it is. I, I think it's, it's a, a friend of mine. I'm coining a phrase actually. A friend of mine just said it. it's a, it's an empire in decline. Yeah, it's quite weird. I mean, it's weird. Yes. So look, going slightly back to the '80s on Flesh yeah. and Lulu, when because yeah. during that period, I mean, the band. It was 24-7, wasn't it, from sort of the, yeah. the kind of early to the late yeah. 80s? Because you did, was it four albums in that space? We, we did, I don't know, one, two, three, four. We actually did do five, but one of them never came out. We were, we were one of those bands. That would, we, we used to manage to get money from record companies and publishers, but it wouldn't necessarily translate into anything ever being released. Right. Jesus, there was there was just a lot of money flying around in those days. We we signed a deal with um, who was it? It was 
um, Electra. Right. It was Electra at one point, and it, it was a period when you'd say Flesh Faluda were inactive. It was probably about six or seven years where actually we didn't do anything. But during that six or seven years, we did actually have a record co- contract. We had money, and we did actually record, but it just never came out. And the same thing happened with the Gigantic record. That record never really was never really released. There were just some, some pressings made up. Um, a friend of mine, Harvey Birrell, uh, who's, um, who's like a music producer, he just pressed up like a, a couple of thousand of them, I think. And um, so it was never, that album was never properly released. Um, they put so much money into that. I mean, that cost a fortune. Yes. You know, and, and, and that's what the music industry was like. There was a lot of money flying around. Because you did, um, you did. Fle- the no. first album was on Polydor. Then you did that was, big. That's Polydor, yeah. Then Big Fun City, Long Live was, the New Flesh. That was on Static. Yeah. That was on a record label called Static, uh, run by an Australian guy called Laurie Dunn. Uh, I think we uh, we were on that. That's where I first met Jeffrey Lee Pierce from the Gun Club. Oh my God, Jeffrey, we loved him. Oh, uh, I, I, you know what? It's, I, I, I got to know Jeffrey really well. Yes. He was, he was my name. I, I almost joined the Gun Club at one point. With the whole dome, what's his Kid Congo powers? Kid, yeah, Kid Congo. Have you read his book? I haven't yet. No, I, did, I, see, I saw him a little while back. I saw him last year, actually. Yes. I ran into him. Because um, the well, first time I ever saw Kid was when Wasted Youth supported the Cramps. And I remember he walked on stage. and He, he just joined them at that point. He was wearing like a, a turban with a big jeweled stone on the front of his turban. And he looked so cool. Yes, <laughs> amazing uh, band. Have you read it? Have you read his book? Yeah, well, I flicked through it. I have to say, I have got it, but I didn't. I haven't actually completely read it. I have to confess, actually. But I did an interview with Terry Graham, who I think was the drummer with the Gun Club at one stage. Oh, um, oh, oh! I knew the drummer, and he he, he ended up in the Jesus and Mary chain. Right. He, he died. He died. Nick, a guy called Nick. Oh. Okay. And he ended up with Romy, Romy, who was um, the Japanese bass player. Yes. Um, and she ended up in, in uh, the Jesus and Mary chain as well. I know. There was a guy, I think it was Jim Duckworth, I did an interview with him as well, who was part of... Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. Tav Falcon's Panther Band, um, Panther Band. Yes, they went through a lot of members, though, didn't they? Uh, I mean, I, I thought Jeffrey was just, like, genius. I mean, he, he was, he was like, you know, mad as a, a jar of snakes, as they say. <laughs> um, yes. he was, yeah, he was, he, yeah. Um, but amazing again. You know, like, you know what? I saw him two weeks before he died. Um, we we were in LA and um, the Gun Club were, were playing. The, where were they playing? I think they were playing the Viper Room. And we got there just as they'd finished. And so we got to hang out with Jeffrey and Kid after the gig for a little while. And then, and then within two weeks, I heard he died. Oh, it was a brain hemorrhage, wasn't it? A hemorrhage. It was at his dad's apparently, and he just collapsed at his father's house. Oh, what a shame. God. Uh-huh. Amazing. Jeezy crazy. Yeah. <clears throat> so, with, yeah, so you did, yeah, and then you went on beggars with Long Live. So and... then, yeah, so then, so basically what, what it, how it works is that at the beginning, you know, we were on uh, Polydor, we toured with the Sisters of Mercy, we were just doing our own little club dates around Britain, uh, we'd do club dates around, around Europe. Um, for some reason, Spain was always a, a good territory for us. Um, and then we did, um, the Big Fun City album with Craig Leon um, and we then we were kind of like packing out slightly bigger venues I think we, that was when we did our first tour of America 
where we just hired a car and we drove like east, west and back again and we had a couple of like um, ex-army sort of sort of uh, roadies who went along went ahead in a U-Haul van and that was that was a great tour we just played you know played these little clubs and stayed in little flea pit motels and that, that was that was a great tour and then we had a bit of a sort of a break where we we, we were getting worried that we weren't going to get signed and then luckily uh, Martin Mills came along from Beggars and he signed us and then we did the album at Abbey Road Studio 2 which is which is for me, it's one of the greatest memories of my life. We're spending three months, you know, at the Beatles studio. Yes. Um, and we did it with Mike Hedges, you know, who worked with The Cure and The Banshees. And at that point, they wanted Flesh for Lulu to, you know, to, to have that kind of radio, American radio kind of, um, you know, sound. So we, we did that album. And just at the end of that album, we got wind that John Hughes, the, the, um, the movie director... Um, was looking for a song for his next film, and, and we then went and just did a one-off recording for a song called "I Go Crazy," and that, uh, I can't remember who produced that. Now he, he was a big producer. What was his name? Can't remember. He was he was like the you know he was like the uh, um, the guy to go to at, at that time if you wanted like a big American radio. Right. Movie. I can't remember his name now. Anyway, so we did that, and as luck would have it, we we did get. We did get chosen. There must have been about 12 or 14 bands on that compilation, and we got chosen as the lead track. And then once that happened, we'd gone from playing clubs to playing theatres. With and then we did a tour with Gene Loves Jezebel. Yes. Uh, like three or four months tour across America, like a like a co. They, we we went on first, but it was like a co-headline. So but so when, even though we went on first, you know they were packed houses, you know, and they were theater, they were big. You know, so we were playing big theatres at that point, and that was that was an amazing tour. And then we then we came back, and then we did the last record in Australia at the NXS studio with uh, uh, a guy called Mark Opitz, who I think he'd recorded um, NXS. I think he might have done some early um, early Nick Cave, and um, he did bands like the Hoodoo Gurus, as American uh, sorry Australia uh, the Saints. Yes. Um, uh, in excess, all that kind of thing. And we, when we did that last record there, and then it, looking back on it, it was a bit of a shame because um, we, we were asked to go on tour with the Kinks. Wow, the good yeah. old Ray, Ray Davis. because yeah, we, we did a cover of I'm Not Like Everybody Else, and I think Ray Davis got to hear it, or, or they got to hear it, and I remember there was a conversation saying, well, the Kinks are touring America, do you want to do the Kinks tour? And it's going to be like big stadiums across America. And to be honest, I, I, I'd go as far to say as that the Kinks are probably one of my favourite all-time bands ever. Yes. But at the same time, um, Johnny Rotten asked us to go on tour with him. And we kind of decided that public image would be more our, as the Americans would put it, more our demographic. <laughs> yes, the classic. <laughs> and, and it, was, I mean, it was a great tour. I mean, it, it was fantastic, you know. I ended up being really good mates with John McGeoch. Um, had a little bit of a set two with Lydon, but that was all right. Um, and it was, a, yeah, that was an amazing tour. So we, we, we did a whole American tour with Public Image. That would have been like sort of early, early mid-90s, I think it was. 
And then that was it, really. Um, we did that tour, and then nothing happened until me and Nick got signed to do the gigantic thing. And then once once that all went wrong, I ended up getting married. I, I, Nick did put Flesh for Lulu back together again, but I didn't do it. So I, I did the last the last sort of like ten gigs that Flesh for Lulu ever did, which were probably about ten years ago now. Yeah. I, I I didn't do them. Did the did the band kind of do a slightly official breakup in the the late eighties? No. Well, what happened was, well, long story short, kind of thing. To be honest with you, I I had enough. I I couldn't I couldn't I just without going to a big long winded story. I could, I couldn't do it anymore. And it was it was during that like making that last record, Plastic Fantastic. I I decided that I wasn't going to be doing it anymore. And I got back to London, and and Nick, typical. We've been together for the last three or four months in Australia making a record, and within a few days of getting back to London, the phone rings. He goes, "Meet you down a pub about two o'clock." All right, okay. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, whatever. And he's like, you know, what's happening? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to do it anymore. And he's like, oh, really? And I'm like, no. So we went. If you're not doing it anymore, I'm not doing it anymore. Uh, apparently, he, he does tell the story the other way around. He said that he's not doing it anymore. And I say to him, oh, because you're not doing it, doing it anymore, I'm not. But it's not the way it really did happen. He said, oh, it was me. And I said, I don't want to do it anymore. Yes. So, and that was it. So, what, what, so we, we, weren't, we weren't getting rid of the other two guys. And also Del, Derek, Del, Del, um, Del, Derek Green in Del Strangefish. Del, it, was, it was kind of like the, the fifth member who played a bit of keyboards and second guitar. He was in the band at that point as well. So, so we weren't sacking James, the drummer, who was the original member, or Kevin Mills, the bass player. We weren't sacking them. The way I saw it is I'm leaving. And I remember we met in a pub really early. Uh, I remember, I forget, it was a co- coaching horses in Sorrow. Yeah. And we were in there at like 11 a.m. And, um, and I remember it didn't last long. Uh, we were there. It, it wasn't a great, that last album, what, it just didn't have a great vibe to me. There was a, there was a lot of like bitchiness going on. I, I just, I couldn't, ha- I couldn't handle it. And, um, and I just said, look, I just don't want to do it anymore. And they went, oh, okay, fine. And they, they walked out. I, we, me and Nick stayed together. And next thing we knew is that they'd taken us to court. And I think they'd spent about 18 or 20 grand of their own money. But we still had Beggar's Banquet behind us. We still had all our management. We had all that. You know, we were the ones that the beggars wanted. They didn't want the others. And, and I think all the beggars did. They just, they just sort of stacked up more money against them. And they put this thing on them called a, a cease and desist. Right. And they were, they were lumbered with a cease and desist order. And that was it. They'd wasted their money, really. So today, officially, I actually own the name Flesh for Lulu, but I'll, I'll never do anything with it. No. God, how strange. You know, I, could ne- I could never do Flesh for Lulu without Nick. No, absolutely. See what I mean? I, I couldn't do that. No, well, but it's... Um... What I, I would like to do is that there's, there's, a, there's a lot of material that over the, like, 30-odd years you know, that I've known Nick... There's a lot of like ideas and some songs that we'd written between us, and I'd, I'd like to um, revisit some of that and, rec- and record it. I'm going to start recording them. Um, I'm going to set up like a little, a little recording studio. Oh, hold on, one of the, the kids are back. Hold on. Hey, Susie, are you all right? I'm just on the phone. Huh? 
I'm just on the phone. Yeah. Can you eat the sandwiches? Yeah, I'm going to eat them. Sorry, Dave, one minute. Mum's made sandwiches for you, all right? Who are you with? I'm on the phone, doing an interview. I'm just doing an interview on the phone. Why are you talking to us then? That's all right. Let's just stop for a minute. Hi. Hello. Hello there. Hi. Hello. That's Rocco. Hello, Rocco. Hi. Hi. Hello there, Rocco Junior. And so, the cheese are. Yes. Uh, have your cheese sandwich. It's it's good for you. Yeah. Um. Yes. Yep. See ya. See you later. All right. I'll, I'll go in the office. All right. I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to get out of their way. <laughs> oh God. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I mean. So. All right. Mum will be home in a few hours. All right. So uh, where was I? Yeah, um, so so the breakup of the band. I mean, the, you you said it wasn't a great vibe, but also the other two were they kind of keen to keep it going? Then the the band. The, yeah, they were. They were. Yeah. Yeah. It's, always, it's a bit of a Roger Walters thing in Pink Floyd, I suppose, isn't it? Well, slight variation, but he kind of I think stepped away, thinking that would be the end of Pink Floyd. But then the others said, "No, we'll keep it going." Whereas in in this case, there wasn't really a band with you and Nick going, was there? There, there was a lot. Oh, I mean, it was. Oh, how can I put it? Um, I think me and Nick used to get most of the attention. You know, like, like, you know, if we would, you know, if, we, you know, if it was journalists and they wanted to speak to us, it'd be me, me they want to talk to, and Nick. You know, uh, um, the record company always focused on me and Nick because you know, we, you know, it's always the guitarist and the singer, is it? Normally. Yes. You know, it's just, just the way it is. You know, and there was a little bit of jealousy going on. I think. Um, Kev was a particularly, I would say, a really probably the strongest songwriter in the band. He was, a, he is, a, was, and probably still is a great songwriter. But he was such a control freak. Um, whereas, you know, me and Nick would come up with ideas, and we'd, you know, we'd work together and you know, bash stuff around. He was very sort of very secretive and wouldn't let anybody near it. And I mean, it, what, what, what actually, what, what the. Um, you know, the, 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 the cam. I would say the, the needle that broke the camel's back was. I remember um, working on this one particular song where um, it was one of Kev's, and I'd been up all night with, with the with the uh, with the engineer, and I, and I felt I'd, I'd done some of the best recording I'd ever done. I thought, I thought it was fucking great. You know, it really did sound good. And then the next day, um, I thought, you know, okay, let's let's play it to Kev. You know, it's Kev's song. You know. And let's just you know, show him, you know, show him what we've done. So we put it on, and the song starts up, and it gets to about halfway through, like probably eight, eight to twelve bars of the intro of the song. And Kev just stood up and he went, "Get rid of it, it's shit." And I thought, "Oh, what's the point? There's absolutely no point." In this at all, because it's not about the music. It's not about what I've just played. I don't think I don't think you like me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you just don't like. Oh, that girl. You know, oh, you know, you know. Us as humans, we're complicated things, aren't we? Yes. You know, I mean, like Lucy, the, you know, the girl that I would attribute to saving my life. Um, well, I think Kev was always kind of like had feelings for her. Right. And. Um, you know, and I, I turn up, and I think he used to go out with her before me, and I just show up, and she ends up with me, and it's just like, you know, I, I didn't plan that, I didn't, was not, you know, it was just, and I don't know, I don't, I don't, I, it just, it was just all too weird. 
and I was with Cleo, and I remember, I remember Cleo just saying, "Look, you're not happy. I can tell you're not happy. Just, just knock it on the head. Go and go and do something else." So, actually, I didn't. I didn't end up doing anything. I just stayed with me and Nick to stay together. But really, I, I think after that, that was it. That was our heyday, and I don't think we ever sort of achieved what we'd done. I don't think we ever we really got any further than what we'd already got. You know, we got as far as we could go. So where I'm at today, really, is that I love the idea of doing Wasted Youth again. I mean, we're getting such amazing reactions. I mean, the first two shows at Lexington were sold out within hours. Um, we sold out the um, the Powerhouse, which holds about like 700, which is great. You know, we played the Albert Hall. Uh, we did one at the Oslo. There was a train strike that night, so it um, didn't quite sell out. And so I'm just loving the idea of, being out playing music with Wasted Youth again, which I'm yes. really enjoying, and I'm gonna s- sort of sit down and start revisiting sort of songs that I've I've had as way back as 30 years ago. Yes. Uh, and the idea is just to start recording them on my own. And I, I, I live around sort of Labrick Grove, Notting Hill area, and I know enough sort of other. I've never worked with other musicians. I've only ever worked with Nick Marsh in Flesh for Lulu, Ken Scott in Wasted Youth. The only thing I did do outside of that was I did work with Cleo because she was my girlfriend. I wrote some songs with her for a little bit. Um, I did do an, an album with General Levy. Oh, yes. People. Good one. Yeah. I did an album with him, um, which I'll, I'll, I'll get to another bit, a bit. But the only other person I really worked with outside of my two bands was um, Rob from Primal Scream, Rob Young, Rob, Rob Throb, Throb, they used to call him. You know, the, the, the long hair, curly hair guitarist. Yes. In Primal Scream. Well, he, he became a really good friend of mine. And we spent like a whole summer hanging out and writing songs together. And then, you know, he, then he died. You know, he, he died a few years ago now. Yeah, no, no, Scream, isn't so it? So me and Rob were going to start working together. And then Rob died. Um, and so, yeah. So I've, I've, I've never been used to working with other musicians. I've, I've only ever worked in my own little environment, if you know what I mean. Whereas this time... Um, I've got a little, a little room that I can use, I can, I, and it's already kind of set up as a little studio. And I'm just, I'm just going to invite people. I mean, I mean, it's nothing like the kind of music that I, I became. I've become quite good friends with a guy that used to be in Curiosity Killed the Cat. Oh, which one is that, Ben? No, I, I do know Ben. Ben lives around the corner to me, actually. Um, um, no, it's a guy called Toby. He was the uh, keyboard player. Apparently, I haven't heard him play, but by all accounts, he's an amazing keyboard player. Yes. Uh, to, um, Toby Anderson, and um, and I'm just going to invite you know just just for fun. There's, you know what? There's a young kid that's moved around the corner, and I know his parents, and he's like apparently he's an amazing sax player. So I'm just going to like just mess about for the, just for the hell of it, and just put to put some ideas down, and just get get random people to come and play on it, and just see what happens. Yeah. And maybe maybe they'll end up being wasted youth songs. Um, I've always been the guitarist stood next to a singer but I'd also really love to actually for the first time in my life actually have do my own little solo project yeah so with Wasted Youth at the moment who's the do you have a lineup for when you play live yeah yeah and does that does that include any of the original members right well the Andy the drum who was was a singer's brother Andy Scott he sadly he died almost two years ago now. Um, Darren, who was the original bass player, he, he died seven or eight years ago. 
Um, Nick's a keyboard player. He, he was going to do it, but he's he's not very well. Or he's, he's just not in the right yeah. frame of mind to be able to commit to it. So the only original members are Ken the singer and me the guitar player. So you, you have got the two that you, you want, I suppose. If you, know, if you are going to see a band... Uh, we're, 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 I think we're, we're, we're what's known as a, as a heritage band, aren't we? <laughs> Slightly. Know, we're like, yeah, you know, I mean, that's someone, someone, there's an agent who, um, who wants, you know, the agents are calling us like a heritage. You know, we're, you know, we're one of those bands that've got, you know, from way back. And so, you know, if you want to see one of those bands, you kind of want, you do want the singer, and and if you want another one, you kind of want the guitar player. So, so there's me and Ken, um, my ex-wife, TC. Miranda Sex Garden. Is she on bass? Yeah, she's on bass. Um, it's um, a guy called Al, who's just a friend of Ken, playing drums. Um, I don't know what other stuff he's done musically, but yeah, you know, he's a good drummer. So Al's playing drums. He's, you know, he's a good drummer. And, and, we've, and we've got this guy called um, Joe, Joe Ro- Joseph Rosen, who's, God, almost half our age. But he's, he's like, he's like in, in his late 20s, and I think Ken met him somewhere, and he's basically a, like a massive wasted youth fan. But he's and I've I've got to hang out with him. I've, I've, he's from Welling Garden City, and, I'm, and I'll stay with him for a few nights and his mum. And he's just he's like a, he's amazing. He's just he's a, a young guy, but he's got so much knowledge about all the music that went before him. Yes, I think his dad was quite into music, and he might have like you know told him quite a lot. But you know, when, you know, he's got a, a really amazing record collection and. You know, we just sort of sat there for hours jamming songs and just having a laugh, you know, and having, having really, really just enjoying it for what it was. Um, and, he's, and to be honest with you, he knocked spots off me as a guitar player. He's a great guitar player. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, so basically, I, I, I play all the meat and potatoes stuff. You know, I play all the basic kind of rhythm. And, he, you know, and he, he does all the, uh, you know, all the, all the frilly stuff. All the the trimmings. Yes, the little intricate (laughs) stuff. So it sounds like you've got really back in a great place with a great-looking band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whether it's going to, like, you know, financially keep us afloat, I doubt it. At this this stage, I doubt it. So we're all doing it on the fly, if you know what I mean. We've all got to, like, you know, Ken, Ken works for the NHS. You know, I've still got my glasses thing, you know. And um, everyone's got their day job, if you know what I mean. Yes, absolutely. I did. It was interesting when you mentioned glasses. I remember, was it um, Voice of the Beehive? I remember speaking to the bass player. Oh, oh, uh, I know. Oh, I, know I, was, I was with, well, a few years now, but I was at a birthday party. And I, was, I, I was with Katie because she used to go out with a guy that I, where I grew up, my mate Dave, and she was with Dave for about 15 years. Right. Katie. Yeah, yeah. well, it was it was Voice of the Beehive, but it was the um, I'm gonna have to have a look at this. It was one of the ba- it's probably the bass player that I spoke to, and it was interesting because he. Oh, had wasn't it. Dave? Wasn't uh, Dave Dave Skinto? Was it Dave Skinto? He, he wrote that he wrote that film, Sexy Beast. Do you remember that film? Oh, um, it probably wasn't him. It was probably a guy called Martin Brett. Martin, Martin, but he he was he was one of those people that he did a big lot of touring with the um, the band, and he said he realised when he'd completely lost it that he'd spent half an hour in the toilet talking to the mirror and realised that he'd gone slightly yeah. bonkers. But then yeah. he found a day job which kind of paid the rent, which was being he became a wig maker, 
And, really? Um, yeah, he said his, what, his, his sister was in the world of theatre and drama and stage work and said, you know, you could, you could make money if you learn how to do wigs and be Oh, beards. I think it was beards. And there was a career in, in this kind of line of work and that was what he fell into. So when you mentioned glasses, I remember yeah. I immediately thought, well, everyone eventually, unless you live the dream of being a rock star, which, let's face it, doesn't last too long, no, um, exactly. <laughs> you, you have to get another gig. And he, yeah. he became, I think it was a beard. I think he did beards for films and Hollywood. Wow. Um, and like your glasses, you, I, I never, yeah, you think, I never realised that was a career. But he said, no, well, the, the money's the good. Problem, the biggest problem I had wasn't just like having the skill to do it, I mean, I've been doing it for like nearly 10 years now. And I still haven't met someone that I, I know that I could train. It took me a year and a half of full on, and I mean full on, I mean Monday to Friday minimum, if not six days a week, every day, and about a year and a half before I made my first frame that I could actually sell. And then the other thing is, is some of the machines are really, really specialised. Yes. And you can't, you can't actually buy them anymore. Because all, all of our industry went to China. Right. You see what I mean? So there are no factories left. It, it ended up with one, one, one old guy who sadly died just during lockdown called Peter Harold, And he was 94, so he'd be like 96 now. And um, there was him, another guy called Colin, who works in a garden shed in Kent. Colin must be 80. Another guy called Wally, uh, who must be in his late 70s now. Um, and then another guy that I work with called Lawrence, who's, who's well into his 70s, and he's still working today. So there's literally a handful of these guys still left, you know, uh, you know left over in the 1970s that still do it. And we've, we've almost lost the, the, the whole industry now. But just recently, since I started my first workshop about 10 years ago, another three or four have opened up, and they're, and they're, and they're being done by young kids. Right. Um, not necessarily from Britain, though. One of them's from the Czech Republic. Two of them are from France. Another guy's Portuguese. Another guy's Greek. Oh yeah, and then and then Colin's grandson. Yeah, he's doing it. So just in the last few years, you know, on a, on a real small scale, it has. It, it, there's a slight kind of artisan little bubble happening. If you know what I mean. But you've got to think, right? Because apparently in the, in the around uh, Kent around the Kent area, there were factories in the 1970s that employed thousands, I mean thousands of people used to work in those eyewear factories. Yeah. And when I spoke to Colin, he went, we, we were there, um, it was when Margaret Thatcher just sold, I mean, she sold all our industry, didn't she? She did. And um, he said, we were there, and, we, and we, we saw these Chinese people that couldn't speak English, and they were all very smartly dressed. And we only used to see Chinese people in Chinese restaurants, right? And um, he said, next thing you know, we were all given our cards and we were all, all made redundant. And he said, instead of taking his, his, his severance pay, you know, his, um, you know, like his payoff, he said um, he took machines. Oh, good idea. Of which, I, of which I, now I've got. Oh, like, for instance, when old, you know, when old Peter Harold passed away... No one was going to buy his machines. They weren't worth anything because no, no one knew what to do with them. They would have ended up in a skip. Yes. You know, so I, I literally, I, I inherited his, his whole workshop. God, that's amazing. Well, you know. Yes. Whenever you make it to London, pop, pop in. 
Oh, well, go down the Portobello Road Market and pop into my little workshop. That would be amazing to see it, actually, because, um, mm. yeah, it's it's kind of a fascinating world. Because there's another guy, there was a, a narco-punk band, I think it was called, is it Amix? Amix? Um, Amix? Oh, God, I'm not very good at this, am I? Right. A, a guy, but he, a guy called Rob Miller, I think his name, he became a sword maker. He makes swords and daggers. Oh, Right, yes. And um, so it's interesting that, that what, what people do after they've done the band. I think he still does music as a sideline, but obviously that's not going to pay, again, the rent. So he no. moved, moved to you Scotland. You know what, I forgot, I forgot among, there is actually a guy near you in Norwich. There's one guy that's uh, he's the only one I've, I've never met before. Um, Dave, his name's Dave Cox. Um, hmm. And he, he lives out towards you, sort of uh, Norwich, sort of Norfolk sort of way. Right. Yeah, and he, he, he's he's getting on now. Apparently, you know, I'm not sure if he's still doing it. He was doing it up to a few years ago. But, um, yeah, he's the only other one I can think oh, of. So a friend of mine, he's telling me about his cousin, um, and he's one of the last um, people that know how to do. Uh, you know, like you know, like um, when you watch those films and um, and it's you know the, the, all the chainmail. You know that you know the chainmail vests. Yeah. That they you know when they you know when they're jousting. And, and and you know medieval kind of like battles and stuff. He's one of the last people that know how to make all, all the chainmail. Wow, that's amazing. And uh, apparently he took on a he took on a an apprentice. Um, he worked on that big film. Oh, what was it? Um, the one that was the big um, with the Australian. Was that Mel Gibson? Mel Gibson. What was the big? What was the one? Oh, Mel, Mel Gibson's a medieval. Yes. Oh, you know that big, that huge Hollywood blockbuster. He, anyway, he did all the costumes in that, and he and he took on a um, an apprentice, and apparently, this apprentice completely did him over, and learned everything from him, and then went back and undercut him. Yeah, that's not I good. Know, it's, that's the problem. It's like. So we've, you know, you teach someone, you know, all the skills and everything, and then next thing you know, it's like, well, bye. Yeah, that's true. I did. I've just looked up Dave Cox. He did the glasses on the biopic for Elton John, didn't he? Oh yes. Um, in fact, Lawrence, who I work with, uh, did a, a lot of glasses for Elton John, and, and Lawrence just recently made some more glasses for Dave Medna. Dave Medna, Barry you know, Humphries. All, all the little stones. Yes. Um, they, they cost about three grand a pair, you know. Right. Blimey, that's amazing. There's a lot of work goes into them. That's incredible, isn't I'm, it? I'm, I'm just in the process of learning how to do all the stone setting. Yes. Jeez, you must have a very steady hand. Yeah, I know. My hands are not steady anymore, I must admit. Yeah, blimey, that's amazing skill. Yeah. Yes, yeah. well... It's what it is, I'll tell you what it is, right? It's, it's a cross between... Precision engineering and freehand sculpture. So you've got to have like a real engineering head and you've got to have an artistic flair with it, which at the end of the day is what a good carpenter is. Yes. If you think, if you think about a really good carpenter that can make, you know, beautiful furniture, that's really what a carpenter is. That's amazing, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, we do, you know what? My mum used to work in a, in a shirt factory, and go, oh, you know what? You know, so what? You know, shirt factory. But actually, my mum was really skilled, and you know, she could do a task 
in, in you know during the process of making a shirt that probably not many other people could do. I don't know what bits you did now. I've forgotten, but we don't seem to have skills like that anymore. You know that, that's why we, you know, we're we're a, an empire in decline because China, India, all those all those countries they've they've still got all those skills, all those manufacturing abilities, and we don't have them anymore. Yes, absolutely. No, it's very strange, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I wonder if there will be a little bit of a return to some, because I've, been, I've noticed just recently there's people making their own like like little lines of, of uh, footwear, their little lines of clothing. Um, um, there's another friend I know set up his own um, lighting design. You know what I mean? Rather than re relying on having it all made in China. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we get a bit, we're a bit worried about our supply chains now, aren't we? We're not sort of so convinced. I mean, when you know globalization, which I still think is great in lots of ways, but obviously a bit tricky at times. But I do think that people are getting a bit more careful with it. You know, and everything everything's made to break. The thing that really really gets me is that everything you buy breaks. I tell you. you know what I mean? And it's like, I'm, you know, I've, I've always been a, a classic car enthusiast. You know, I've had some lovely old cars. I've had old Bentleys and Rolls Royces and old Mercedes. And you know what? You get an old car like that, you don't even have to buy any new parts for it. You just restore. If it's rusty, you just clean it up and put it back on again. Yes. You know, you, you buy a new car today, you've got to have a bloody PhD to open the bonnet. It's very electronic, actually. My dad was a mechanic, and actually, I don't think he would have a career now because it's it's not about fixing it. You just kind of replace circuit boards, and yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a very different gig now, isn't it? So it's probably it's oh, probably okay. skillful, but in a different way. Whereas in, in his I, day, I, I was maybe you maybe you might have got it at school, but I was the last generation, I think, that where we we were taught we we were, we were supposed to become like the engineers. We, we would have been skilled factory workers. So when we did woodwork and we did, we had an engineering department, um, and we and we had an amazing metalwork department. And I remember I could run a Colchester lathe. At the age of twelve, I was running a Colchester lathe. Yeah, and we I had me it. we we had metalwork. I really work. loved it. Yes, huh? this, this is true. We had a metalwork department. So um... I really enjoyed it. It was the one thing that at school that I really really took to. Yes, it's funny, isn't it, really? Woodwork and metalwork and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, but they all went. So, look, just going back to the, the kind of general music, so Wasted Youth, it's full on, isn't it? You've got lots of projects with potentially new stuff coming out in the next yeah. couple of years. Yeah, that's the idea, yeah. It's a slowly sort of... Um, I mean, it's a gargantuan task in itself just for me to get all my bits of paper that are strewn all over the place and in, in briefcases and boxes that I've packed away and cassette tapes I haven't listened to in 20 years. and So I want to get all that together. And, and you know what? And just enjoy it for what it is. Yes. And, I, yeah. I, and also, I mean, just as... I want because it's on my mind. The guy from that Petrol Emotion, I mean, they put out this, I think, seven-CD box set, and I think they just really enjoyed archiving everything because they realised that yeah. actually... You know, it's quite a satisfying project, and also they can give it some sort of, I don't know, completion, but not completely, because they might be doing various new bits and pieces as well. But also just sort of being able to, I don't know, 
It isn't about making peace with the past, but it's also about being able yeah. to process the past in a way exactly. that... Exactly. That feels... They were a great band, actually. We, we, we ended up on bills together in America um, yeah. and every they... now and again. And they, yeah. you know, and they had a lot of, you know... Is the singer still with them? I think he was a Canadian. I think the guy was American. He was Steve American, Mack. American, that's he, From yeah, Seattle. Yeah, Well, I mean, the band are no longer going concerned, but I think um, I think they, there is a sort of vague temptation to do some more dates one day if if things line up, but they've all got day jobs now, so it's a little bit different, isn't it? I think it? one of them... Oh, I used to have a girlfriend from Northern Ireland, um, and she took me to, to Derry... And um, we went to a place called the, the Nerve Centre. Right. And I think it was something to do with that petrol emotion. It's like an arts, it's like a, a creative arts, you know, because of all the troubles that were there. And, yeah. You know, it's one of those kind of like, um, you know, social, um, what they call it, you know, um, like a social well-being kind of centre. Yeah. And I think um, that petrol emotion was sort of linked to that as well. Well, I think, um, yeah, they've... I would imagine because John, oh God, John, John O'Neill, John one of the guitarists. John O'Neill was the one who was in the undertones and wrote the great songs. Yeah. But I think he yeah. left on their when they were recording their fifth album. I think they decide he decided he didn't want to be part of the band, so that kind of threw them a lot. But they kind of fixed, they kept going. But I think in the end, you know, they had like um, problems with record labels and that kind of stuff. And I think in the end. They they never were very lucky with their, any of their releases. I don't think they became. No, so they I know. they kind of missed the boat a bit, and I think they thought. I know. You know, let's just give it a miss, and I, they've I you mean, know done I other think things. The same with Flesh for Lulu. I think Flesh for Lulu had had the potential to become, you know, much more successful than we than we were. You know. Yeah, and I think um, I think a lot of it is is not luck, but it's it is slightly luck, isn't it? And timing. Yeah, and if you if you get all. If you get it's timing, it's timing it is luck as well. Yeah. And if you get everything lined up, it might just yeah. work. But if it doesn't line up, because I think they had one manager who from the record label who was like, "Right, that's brilliant," and then said, "I'm really sorry, Paul McCartney wants me to manage him, and I can't um, say." Well, that's exactly what happened to us. I mean, um, I remember Nick Terzo, who signed us. You know, it, it was like you know we were being told, you know, this is it. You guys are going to, you know, you guys are going to be playing stadiums this time next year. You know, and we were like, "Oh my God!" You know, and um, and then literally within months, um, I got I got a, I don't know why, but he wrote to me, and he sent me a book, and um, he wrote to me just saying, you know, it was a, a you know like an, an offer that I, you know an offer that you can't refuse, and it was literally Madonna saying, you know, you're you're going to be the head of um, Maverick Records, and he sent me a book. Uh, I can never pronounce his name, but it's that. He's an amazing writer. Uh, you know, The Alchemist. Have you read a book called oh, The Alchemist? Oh, yeah, yeah. Cohilo. Cohilo? Yes, I know. The, yeah, that's... It's a story about a boy who has a dream and he travels halfway across um, Morocco or wherever. Oh, yeah. Oh, can you answer? Is that, oh, is that, is that Gwen? I'll go and answer it. Oh, sorry, someone's just ringing me. Um, um, and basically... It's a story about a boy who has a dream, you know, and <laughs> things happen for a reason, don't they? Yes. You know, it, was, you know, it was a lovely thought, but that, that was it. He sent me that book, and it, it kind of made sense, yeah. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview, apart from a few more minutes of casual 
chat that you probably don't want to hear. Anyway, a massive thank you to Rocco for giving me the in time for that interview. And um, yes, like I said, if you go to his or their Facebook page, Wasted Youth, you'll find out more about live dates that are coming up. It's true. Anyway, um, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86show. All these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, um, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. So there you go. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.